Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Crawford, MD. I'm a fertility doctor, and today we are going to talk about fertility factor fiction. So I'm on social media and like the rest of the world this past week, I was just really obsessed with threads. So if you don't know, threads is Instagram or Meta's version of Twitter. Twitter, I was a late adopter and it was kind of boring. I was there. It just was so charged with people trying to cause controversy on purpose. And those are the people who became big very often as people who came in attacking other people, purposely trying to stir the pot. And I love stirring the pot when the time is necessary, but I'm sick of being on social media and having it be so antagonistic. So thread started and it's like a blank canvas and everybody has been so nice and it has been fun. All right. Well, moral of the story is that I balance a lot of balls, right? So There's Fora, that's our fertility practice that Amanda Skillern and I own and run. There is this podcast, there is the YouTube, there's all the social media stuff. There's Pinnacle, which if you're a woman in medicine, we are about to open registration for Pinnacle 2024, May 17th to 19th. I'm bringing it to Austin. It's going to be downtown and so fun. So stay tuned or follow along so you know about that. But I often batch content. When you guys ask, how do you do everything or how do you balance time? One of the things that I always do is one of my days off, I will record a few podcasts or record a bunch of YouTube videos and just bust some of that out while I'm in the mood, while I'm in that content creation zone, and then I can stay on top of things. However, I really kind of thought that I had batched some podcast episodes and went out of town, went to the lake for the 4th of July, and I was just sitting pretty thinking I had recorded everything and the internet's not stellar out there. So I never got on to Trello to check the board that Kayla, Kayla is my everything. Thank you, Kayla, for editing the podcast. And she updates me like, hey, Nat, you need a podcast coming up this week. So internet's not good at the lake. I totally disconnected. Fantastic. Had no idea that I did not pre-batch the podcast. So here we are and I get a text from her Friday night as we're headed to the Little Mermaid because my daughter has been wanting to see it and she was at summer camp and she's home. Hey, don't forget to upload the podcast when you can. And I am like, oh my goodness, I have not done the podcast. Hasn't even crossed my brain. I don't even know what's up in my list. I don't have a batching day. I got nothing. So then I posted a thread since that's where I'm spending my time and asked people what they want to hear. And 
Factor and Fiction One. So if you're not on Threads, it's connected to Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Go and hang. I'm a little unhinged there. It's just very spur of the moment. I'm definitely not reposting other content. Instagram's like my hub for all my content. So you want to see what podcast episode, what YouTube is out. That's cool. Threads is totally different. So we're going to dive into some factor fiction and essentially just things that people have asked or things that I talk about all the time. And sometimes I almost forget about it because it becomes so second nature to me, but they're really true questions you have when you are trying to learn more about your body or you are trying to understand your hormones. And so this is fertility and hormones, fact or fiction. All right. So the first one is going to be that birth control hurts your fertility. And I'm going to give this one a maybe. Ooh, so that's controversial. The birth control pill. Let's start here. And the reality is birth control is a very all-encompassing category, right? It's contraception. And often when people say birth control, they're talking about the pill or the combined estrogen, progesterone, contraceptive pill. All right. The birth control pill does not cause infertility, very clearly stated. It is ethanol estradiol with a different type of progestin. The doses of ethanol estradiol can vary. A pill that's a tricyclic has different levels every week. A pill that is monophasic, which is what most of us use now, is going to be the same estrogen throughout the entirety of the pill pack. And a low pill or a low low, they have lower levels of estrogen. We should generally like people to be on the lowest level you need to prevent ovulation. However, the lower the estrogen goes, the more likely you might be to have breakthrough bleeding or spotting. So if that's an issue, you might need to up it to a more regular level. The pill is very short acting, meaning you can miss a single pill and ovulate. FSH can surge, you can grow an egg and you can ovulate. And we've probably all heard stories about that. The pill, somebody got pregnant on the pill. So it doesn't hurt your fertility. It is so short acting when you're done with it, you're going to resume whatever your normal is. Now, one of the issues is that people can be on long-term contraceptive and they take the pill for years and years. Taking the birth control pill for 10 years decreases your chance of ovarian cancer like 90%. It's astronomical because the ovary is not going through that ovulation and healing process over and over again. But when the ovary is in that quiet state for so long, it also kind of gets bored and forgets how to act. And so that might mean it's not going to ovulate quite as quickly coming right off the pill. It's got to wake up. We know this with ovarian reserve also. If you've heard me talk about ovarian reserve, I like to think about the number of eggs that you have as you're born with all the eggs you're ever going to have and imagine they're in a vault inside your ovary. Now, every single month from when you're a baby inside your mother's womb, a group of eggs is released every single month. Until you start puberty, these eggs die. All the eggs, they just die. When puberty starts, this is when your body starts making FSH. FSH is follicle stimulating hormone and each egg grows in a follicle. So now FSH is going to stimulate an egg to grow and you're going to ovulate. And once you ovulate, you're going to have a period, but you are running out of eggs this whole time. We would love a way to really know how many eggs you have and how fast you're losing them. So we could predict the rate of decline of your egg account, but we don't have that. What we know is that as the vault gets more empty, fewer eggs are released every month. So we can do an antral follicle count, which is an ultrasound determination of how many eggs you have and see, oh, how many eggs do we have? And the lower you have, 
the fewer eggs you have remaining. And we can also do a blood test, which is markedly easier than a transvaginal ultrasound. And the blood test is AMH, anti-mullerian hormone. Now, AMH is made from the granulosa cells or cells that surround all of the follicles. And when your ovary's been quiet for a really long time, those cells start to become less active as well. And we know this because on the oral contraceptive pill, you can have a decrease of your AMH. And it's not a real drop. You didn't really lose eggs. You're just not seeing them. They're not as active. And the same thing with your ovary has been quiet for so long, it's forgotten how to respond and to ovulate. And if you try to go into egg freezing off being on continuous birth control pills for 10 years, you very well might get a lower response than if you took a pill break. And so because the number of eggs you get is correlated with outcomes, that could impact your fertility in some way. So the thing to know here is that one, whatever your period pattern is, if you have underlying PCOS, if you have underlying endometriosis, that irregularity or that pain will come back when you stop the pill. I tell people that it should take around three-ish months to get your regular period back. And if you don't, you should go get an evaluation to see what is going on. Another thing, especially if you use a low estrogen pill and you take it all the time, like you never have a period, which I'm fine with. And I took it like that for many years because you don't need a period if you're on contraception. But when you are doing that, you are thinning out the uterine lining and that's why you're not having a period. Also fine. But then when you want to come off of it and get pregnant, your body hasn't built a uterine lining in a long time and that can take a while. And so another thing might be if you're approaching the period where you want to get pregnant soon, but you've been on the birth control pill and you take it continuous so you don't ever have a period, start taking those five-day pill breaks so that you get a period again and you start bleeding every month because that's going to be a sign that that lining is growing back and getting thicker. And that is something that sometimes in patients, I even have to give them extra estrogen and prime that lining if we're trying to get back to a thicker lining or an implantation sooner. But as far as the birth control pill causing you to run out of eggs, that's not true. Causing you to not ovulate afterwards or go into PCS or develop some type of anovulation from the pill, not true. But when you stop the pill, whatever your normal is has to come to surface. So start tracking. And if things are irregular after three months or you have no period, I saw a patient this past week who hadn't had a period in a year after stopping the pill. That's too long. Something's going on. You could have hypothalamic amenorrhea, PCOS, thyroid disease, hyperlactin. There's a bunch of different things. Go get an evaluation. So that's what you need to know about the birth control pill. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No mind shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual.
And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. Plan B does not cause infertility, does not cause long-term fertility issues, no issues with your egg count. The Depo-Provera shot, this is my least favorite of all the contraceptives. Depo-Provera is an injectable progesterone. You might think of it as the shot you can take it and not worry for three months. So it is proven in studies and almost everybody to prevent ovulation for three months. So if you're using it for contraception because you don't want to be pregnant, you need to take that shot every three months. But... If you suddenly want to be pregnant, the effect of Depo-Provera could actually last for 18 months in some people, meaning that progesterone can prevent you from ovulating for 18 months. If you think you're going to get pregnant in the next two years, Depo is not a good choice for you. Now, a progesterone-based IUD is a fantastic long-term contraceptive option, but many of them do thin the uterine lining significantly. So please get it removed three to six months before you want to get pregnant because the uterine lining does take time to build back up. Those are some of the basics about contraception and does it cause infertility or how does it impact your fertility that I always think patients should know. I can always do IVF. There is this idea to many people who have not jumped into infertility that you can just do IVF and it will work. And I think this comes from society and seeing celebrities, especially at older ages, have success with IVF without possibly being transparent about what it took for them to get from point A to point B. And that's really a disservice to all of it. IVF, what is the success rate? Because if you go and Google it, you're going to see so many different things. And this is confusing because IVF success depends on how old you are and how many eggs you get. And if you're doing genetic testing of the embryos or are you not? So classic IVF success rates are all based on age, assuming you do not do genetic testing of embryos. This is because 10 years ago, we did not do genetic testing of embryos. When I entered into this field, genetic testing was just starting. IVF is only about 40 years old. The very first people who went through IVF, there were no medications to stimulate multiple follicles. They just followed the one follicle that you were naturally making and would go and retrieve that egg through abdominal surgery and then put that egg and sperm together in a dish and then transfer it into your body a few days later. We didn't have the art to get embryos from day three to day five because they need different metabolic requirements in the culture dish for many years. Freezing techniques took a long time to get where they are. And the ability to biopsy an embryo, test the placental cells for genetics, have the embryo survive the freeze and thaw, that is fantastic, amazing technology that has really changed the game for us. Because now with patients, 
we can know which embryos have the highest chance of success. We can batch cycles so that we get those embryos and we can be much more efficient on our journey. So when you Google IVF success, a genetically normal embryo, right? This seems like it's going to be the perfect embryo has an average live birth rate of about 65%, which is really, really good because if you are 30 and you start trying to get pregnant, your natural fecundability or probability of pregnancy per month is going to be about 20 to 25%. So putting one embryo in for that month and having a 65% chance live birth rate, awesome sauce. And with genetically normal embryos, that rate of cumulative success increases per embryo transfer, meaning after three transfers, 95% of people have had success. After two, it's 88. So I always tell my patients, even with genetic normalcy, not every embryo is going to work. We're not going to freak out if the first one doesn't work. The average embryos it's going to take to get somebody pregnant is over one and a half. You can't have one and a half transfers. So we're going to put our mind on two transfers to get to success. But 95% of people are going to have success after three transfers of a genetically normal embryo. That's very different than just transferring three untested embryos. And what I mean by this is that one thing you need to know if you're going through IVF is what is my probability of getting a genetically normal embryo? Because if you're 40, it's going to be about 20% of your embryos, meaning I've got to make five embryos to find a normal one. And that means I probably need to have 10 eggs that fertilize. So I probably need to be able to retrieve 12 to 14. And that might not be possible in one cycle for you. But if you're age 30, 70% of your embryos are genetically normal. So that's a much higher number. I probably only need two to find a normal one. So you can retrieve many fewer because I only need two blasts likely to find a normal one. So I only needed four to fertilize. I only needed to retrieve five or six. That's hugely different because the average 30-year-old is going to have many more than five to six. The average 40-year-old may not have 12 to 14. So this is why you hear us in the fertility community say age is the number one predictor of success. But if we can find those euploid embryos, maybe you'll get it in your first cycle if you're older. Maybe you do back-to-back cycles. This is also why when you are young, even if you are running out of eggs, have a very low AMH, have diminished ovarian reserve, you should be given the chance to go through IVF if you want because your egg quality, your chance of success is so high. That being said, if I'm transferring untested embryos, I don't know if they're normal or not. For people as they get older, we're going to be transferring more abnormal embryos and we know that. So your chances of live birth per age. This is a common question. What are the actual success rates of IVF? If you're under age 35, your chance of success for a single embryo transfer, your first embryo transfer, no matter how many embryos you chose to transfer, if they were untested, is going to be 37.5 if you're under age 35, 29% if you are 35 to 37, 20% if you're 38 to 40, 10% if you're 41 to 42, and 3% if you're over age 42. Now, Those are not the numbers you normally see because SART guidelines give us all these weird rates and many places quote your live birth rate per egg retrieval. That's really different because how many transfers are you getting to get there? But regardless, your live rate 
per egg retrieval is 50% if you're under age 35, 37 if you're 35 to 37, 25 if you're 38 to 40, 12 if you're 41 to 42, and 3.9% if you're over age 42. And these numbers are relatively low. And the reason why is because not every embryo is going to be genetically normal and not every genetically normal embryo is going to be successful. But if we look at this with data for people who've had genetically normal embryos, then we're going to see success rates of between 60 to 70% per genetically normal embryo across age ranges. And so this is the great equalizer is that it's harder to find a genetically normal embryo as you get older, but if you do, you're going to have success. The other thing is people will not stimulate somebody to get all of their eggs. And so the example I just gave of a 40-year-old who needs 12 to 14 eggs to find a genetically normal embryo, you will have clinics who will charge you less to do minimal stimulation, purposefully under-stimulating you and getting you less eggs, not doing genetic testing, but they're only stimulating four eggs to grow. And then they're putting back whatever becomes successful, meaning whatever makes it to a blastocyst, but you're not getting pregnant. So you're doing more cycles and those clinics are making more money. Doing a minimally invasive approach or a mini stem or minimal IVF, I like it in the right patient. Namely, if you're not going to make more than four eggs, if that's what you're going to get, I don't need these high doses of medication. That's not realistic. And the other is if you are purposefully understimulating somebody who's young, like with tubal factor, who has a ton of eggs, who has PCOS, who you're doing InvoCell. So I do think there's a place for it, but it is used as a marketing tool. And then people who are 40 will go to these clinics, spend all of their money, and they're shocked that IVF did not work for them. IVF doesn't work for everybody. It does work for the majority of people who choose to do it who are counseled appropriately. And I think those are questions to ask. How many cycles do you think I will need? How many normal embryos do you think I will get per cycle? Understand what your success rates are and make sure that you're advocating for yourself along the process. In the same light, I hear people say all the time, well, I'm really healthy. So I know I'm 42, but I'm really healthy. So it's not going to be a problem. I think every fertility doctor who's on social media or who you'll ever see or who's your bestie in real life will tell you that age, again, is the number one predictor of success. Should you be healthy? Of course. It's good for your body to eat whole foods, to exercise, to get good sleep at night. Those are good and healthy things. That being said, you cannot change that your eggs are becoming more chromosomally abnormal as you get older. If I go back to my vault analogy, imagine that all your eggs sitting inside that vault, they're actually held in a stage of cell division called metaphase of meiosis. And if you go back to biology and you remember meiosis, metaphase is when your chromosomes meet in the middle. So they are lined up and you have double of every chromosome in your body. So they are lined up with their little respective pair and then they split into half when you ovulate. And that's how the egg has 23X to be able to pair with a 23X or a 23Y sperm to make a new genetic creation of your child. But they sit there in metaphase until you ovulate. And that is where the chromosome damage happens. These little meiotic spindles are proteins that hold your chromosomes in the perfect place and they absorb the wear and tear of your life. And so age is the number one predictor because the time they have sat there, even if you're the picture of health, you know, you're still going to have back pain and you're going to get wrinkles because our bodies age. But you can definitely age faster. Like smoking is a fantastic example. People who smoke both run out of eggs and have a decrease in their egg 
quality, meaning more genetically abnormal eggs because of this chromosome damage. We know that toxic chemicals in our world are doing the same thing. So certainly our eggs are influenced by the world around us, but age is still the number one most important thing. Well, you can't change your age. So yeah, if you're 42, should you be your healthiest self? Yeah. But you should not think that because you are healthy, you're going to have an easy time conceiving. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. Natural fertility rates. If you're trying to conceive your first child at age 42, it's going to be about 3% per month. So that is not zero. And yes, your best friend's mom's cousin may have gotten pregnant at age 42. No big deal. But if you are really wanting a family and that is a life goal and you are starting this journey at 42, time is not on your side. And this is why we recommend that if you are 40 and older and you want to get pregnant, you should go see a fertility doctor if you're just starting this journey. You don't have any other kids. You're 40. Come see us get basic testing. If everything's fine, you might try to get pregnant naturally. Great. But if the sperm counts are low or you're running out of eggs or your tubes are blocked, you now have not wasted your time. Or if you really want to have multiple kids, but you met your person late, we can save some embryos because it's still easier now then it's going to be in a couple years. Also in line with this IVF will work for everybody concept is the idea that you can just walk into a fertility clinic and do IVF, meaning most clinics do have an upper age cutoff where you cannot use your own eggs because the rate of success becomes so low. Most clinics in the Austin area, I know my area, it's age 42. So after you're 42, you can't go through. We at Fora use 45. I always think there's wiggle room, meaning not every 43-year-old is created equal. And so proper counseling about your ovarian reserve and your circumstance is really needed if you're considering going through. But I think 42 is a little bit too young of an arbitrary cutoff. So if somebody just says, this is our cutoff and it's 40 or 41 or 42, you might want to call around and see what other clinics say. All right. And then there's a whole slew of factor fiction around intercourse and timing and to-dos. So let's just knock some of them out. How often should you have intercourse if you're trying to get pregnant? The reality is if you are only going to have intercourse one or two days, it is best to have intercourse the day before and the day of ovulation. The day of ovulation, the egg lives for 24 hours, the end. It needs to be fertilized within that window. Sperm can live up to five days. Not every sperm is going to last that long, but it can live for up to five days. 
So in the perfect world, there's some little sperm waiting for when the egg decides to enter the fallopian tube. And then you give it some more sperm along its journey. I always think the easiest is an ovulation predictor kit. This is a urinary-based kit where you pee on it. The box says first thing in the morning. That is not my recommendation. I like people to use a OPK between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. And the reason why is that LH is a hormone that triggers your body to ovulate, to allow that follicle to rupture and the egg to be released. LH is going to surge the day before you ovulate, and it's going to surge for most people in the morning. So if you were using your first morning urine, you might miss it because it might be surging, but hasn't filtered through your blood and into your urine yet. So I like 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., Don't have too dilute urine. So if you're a heavy water drinker like I am, that's okay. But make sure you have a semi-concentrated sample so you can get a positive. But if you are using an OBK the day before and the day of, so day of the positive OBK, which is the day before you ovulate, and the day after the positive OBK or the day you do ovulate, two top days for intercourse. And honestly, if you have intercourse those two days, whatever you do the rest of the month barely matters. However, not everybody likes checking an OPK and some people don't really know when they ovulate. If you ovulate really regularly and you know this based on your symptoms or cervical mucus, you can target those days. Now the adage came in that for most people, especially before we had all these tracking methods, we would tell people to just have intercourse every other day, or, and we would calculate the fertile window just based on the calendar method. And that is where all of this came from. In most people, the luteal phase is 14 days. You take the length of your cycle, the day you start your period, until the day before your next period comes. Let's say it's 30 days. Subtract 14 from it, 16 That's the estimated day you ovulate. So sperm can live for five days. So your fertile window is going to be the five days ending on day 16. From day 11 to 16, you should have intercourse every other day. This was before OPKs and fancy BBTs that were easy to use. And that would, for the vast majority of people, be an easy way to not worry about it too much. Well, what this has caused is a lot of people to come in and then feel like, well, that recommendation is intercourse every other day. So now I shouldn't have sex every day. And if you're sex everyday people, you just keep having sex every day. You're going to have plenty of sperm there when you ovulate, the end. If you're sex every other day people, go for it. If you're sex two to three times a week, you're doing great. This whole recommendation is for people who don't have intercourse all the time. And that's very common. But if you are having robust intercourse in your life, please do not pull it back in the essence of some idea that you need to save up sperm. That's actually not true. It doesn't matter what position you're in. You don't need to have your legs up afterwards. You don't need to put anything inside of you to try to keep the sperm there. When you go to the bathroom afterward, whatever falls out of you, that is just the ejaculate, the seminal fluid that protects the sperm because the vagina is acidic and sperm is alkaline. The vagina would just kill it. So it needs this protective barrier and they quickly swim out of there and get up into the cervix and the uterus, and most of the sperm that hang around hang out in the cervix and the uterus. So what comes out of you is just the sperm's protective coat. Similarly, intercourse in the morning or the evening doesn't really matter. I've heard some people say, oh, in the morning, sperm is better because it was saved up overnight. That's not true. And then there's lubricant. So this is an important one because people or companies make lubricant and they make money, which is great for them. But if they make money, then what's happening is they might say something 
and they're interpreting a study in a way that's favorable to them. So they will say, oh, Natalie's fertility lubricant improves fertility, helps you get pregnant two times compared to others. And they take their lubricant, Natalie's fertility lubricant, and they compare it to known bad ones, known things that harm sperm. Okay. What they're not comparing it to is nothing. So if you can have intercourse with no lube, that's the best. Don't put any barrier between the sperm getting where they need to go. Now, if you can't, which is okay, because sometimes people do need lube because things are dry or just is going to make it more comfortable. So really what you want to do is use a lubricant that is water-based, but also the right pH. Because what we find is that not all water-based lubricants are the same. You need something that's pH neutral so that it doesn't interfere with the cervical mucus and the sperm. We want to have as little barrier as possible because the sperm needs to be able to swim through it. Now, some fertility-friendly lubricants might have other chemicals which are not excellent, but in general, oils are not better than lube and saliva is actually not good either. So you want to use something that actually says it is sperm friendly, like pre-seed or conceive plus or baby dance. Those are all examples of some that will say fertility lubricant and they are a neutral pH water-based. So again, no lube is best. If you need lube, saliva, no go. And then look for something that's water-based and pH neutral. And then there is, you need to have an orgasm to conceive. Well, I mean, I think that female orgasm should always be the goal. And this is something that is not going to be harmful because female orgasm and the little contractions that occur actually do help move sperm to get closer to where the egg is, but it's not necessary because what we do know is from studies looking at intercourse, that 75% of women never reach orgasm from intercourse alone. And there's a whole 10 to 15% that don't orgasm no matter what. So orgasms are not harmful. They can be helpful. They are not necessary or mandatory. And then there's some factor fiction myths about when you can get pregnant. I just told you those two most probable days based on ovulation, but ovulation is not perfect in everybody and every cycle can be a little bit different. So let's go through some of those. One, you can't get pregnant when you're breastfeeding. You can get pregnant when you're breastfeeding. Remember that breastfeeding causes you to have high prolactin levels. High prolactin is made from the pituitary gland where FSH comes from. So in general, when prolactin is very high, the brain is not sending out FSH, so you're not ovulating. It's a form of hypothalamic amenorrhea. At some point, prolactin levels are going to drop. Typically, this is when you decrease the amount of breastfeeding, such as introducing solid foods. And when prolactin drops, FSH rises, you ovulate and start a period again. Everybody's going to ovulate, though, before you start your first period, and you don't know when that is. And so... Typically, what we say is that your chance of getting pregnant when you're breastfeeding, if you're exclusively breastfeeding in that first six-month period and that's your baby's only source of food or your period has not come back yet, it's less than 6%. So it's possible but not probable. But thinking, oh, I haven't had my period and I'm breastfeeding, so I'm definitely not going to get pregnant, false. Another one is that you can't get pregnant on your period. You can get pregnant on your period. Is it probable? No. Remember, as we said earlier, sperm can live for five days. 
and the average period for a single person, the actual menses, can be anywhere from four to eight days and be very normal. So if you have a 26-day cycle, you are on average going to ovulate on day 12. And let's say your period is seven days long and you have sex the last day of your period and sperm can live for five days. You can see how that math can math. So everybody cycles a little bit different, but the shorter your period intervals are and the longer your period is, the more risky this becomes if you're trying to time or use the calendar method in order to not get pregnant. If you really want to not get pregnant and you're using the calendar method because you don't want to be on any type of contraception, you should wait until your temperature has risen after ovulation. That is going to be the best way and have intercourse in the luteal phase and then abstain in the follicular phase unless you know for sure that you ovulate well late, but sperm can live for up to five days. So we do not want to have sex if we're not wanting to get pregnant in that window. So unlikely to get pregnant on your period, however, it is possible. And then there are some sperm ones, right? What about boxers or briefs? What about hot tubs? What about laptops? Okay. So boxers or briefs, there's this idea because we know the scrotum keeps the testes outside the body. And the reason they're outside of the abdominal cavity is because they need to be at a lower temperature than the rest of the body. High temperatures permanently damage the testes. So if somebody had an undescended testy, it stayed in the abdominal cavity, it actually will stop functioning completely. So we don't want to overheat the testes. We know that's bad for them. So for example, hot tubs, sitting in a hot tub or a sauna frequently, it's not never, but frequently or cycling like extreme outdoor cycling for long intervals or laptops, having a laptop on your lap where you have that heat, that is bad. So you want to avoid that type of extra heat to the testes. However, There's not an increase in the heat from a damaging standpoint if you like briefs over boxers. So we don't have to worry about that. So there was a study of over 500 men looking at their underwear choice and it didn't have any difference in sperm parameters at all. So don't go tell your person they have to wear boxers if they prefer briefs or boxer briefs. Another thing when it comes to sperm is going to be There's this idea that men don't have a biological clock and it is less early, right? It's later than women and it's not as abrupt, meaning when women go into menopause, it is very abrupt. You have no eggs that are going to be ovulated and you have no estrogen production and you have all these symptoms that accompany this. So men last longer, for lack of a better word but they do start to make less viable sperm as they get older. They do have a drop in testosterone. And then we do start to see damage to the chromosome component and things like certain types of genetic diseases and developmental disorders associated with men at an advanced paternal age, but that's 50 and older. And then there is the I can't see a fertility doctor until I've been trying to get pregnant for a year. And I've actually had doctors tell patients this one too. This comes from looking at when the majority of people will be pregnant. All right, so 57% will be pregnant after three months of trying. Trying presumes having intercourse and regular periods. 72% pregnant at six months. 85% pregnant at one year. Okay, so this data led people to say, okay, well, 
Most people will be pregnant by one year. So if you're not pregnant after one year, then you should go see a fertility doctor. And for people who are younger, this has been the standard. So if you're under age 35, with the presumption, somebody else is making a presumption about you and your goals, that you have time to achieve the family you want. But what if you want four kids and you're 34? So this may not be that accurate. I want you to note that between six months and one year, there's not a huge difference. So 72% of people are pregnant at six months and 85 at one year. So most people are getting pregnant in those first six months. This is why if you're over age 35, we set that as a cutoff because we do know that you have less time overall. So most people are going to get pregnant within those first six months. A small group will get pregnant from six months to one year. But after one year, you should definitely get a fertility evaluation. You can always get an evaluation earlier. You no longer live in a world where fertility doctors are hard to find, only your OBGYN can send you to one, you always have to have a referral and some standard reason. You can literally call my clinic and get an appointment. The end. So if you're worried, you can call. If you're older, the older you are, the sooner we want to test for things. It doesn't mean, as I said earlier, that you have to go do invasive treatment, but it gives you the opportunity to intervene on something abnormal much sooner. However, if your periods are not regular, if you're not having a period, if you have extreme pain, if you're not able to have intercourse for whatever reason, these are things where you would want to see somebody earlier. If you have a known prior diagnosis that might impact your fertility, maybe you have known endometriosis, known PCOS, you have a history of having an eating disorder and you don't have a period anymore. These are reasons to not just try aimlessly for a year. I have seen people who have two periods a year trying for a year before they felt like they were allowed to come and see us. And that's really heartbreaking. So you can always see a fertility doctor earlier and you can always start the process. And the last thing I'll end with is that there's no test to prove you're fertile. And I wish there was. People will call me or ask questions. Can you test to know that I'm fertile? And I can't. I can test that your uterus is normal. You don't have a uterine birth defect or a fibroid or a polyp. I can test that your fallopian tubes are open, that they aren't scarred and have some issue. I can test that you have an appropriate number of eggs for your age, or are you running out early with test of ovarian reserve, like AMH and antral follicle count. I can test to see if you're ovulating or if you have an ovulation issue. I can test your partner's sperm, but I cannot know that egg and sperm will be able to meet in your body. That is what unexplained infertility is, that is when all of these things are normal, yet people are still not getting pregnant. And about 20 to 30% of people who come to an infertility clinic have unexplained infertility. So I can test that you don't have these certain problems, ovulation issues, tubal disease, male factor infertility, uterine abnormalities, running out of eggs. But I cannot test if you will get pregnant. And don't think that you can do a test and over the counter test or a mail order test and check your fertility and feel good that you'll be able to get pregnant and can delay. If you are purposefully delaying starting a family and family is a goal for you, then when you reach your early to mid thirties, if you're not ready to get pregnant, you should be thinking about fertility preservation with egg or embryo freezing. That is the honest answer. No test is going to make you feel better that waiting is going to be okay if this is truly a goal. Of course, children don't need to be goals for everybody, and you can have a very happy and fulfilled life otherwise, but I know so many goal-oriented people 
who were never told that or thought that that one blood test they had said that they were fertile. And by the time they realized it wasn't true, it was too late. Okay, guys, thanks for being here. I hope you like this episode of Fact or Fiction Fertility Hormones Edition. I'm going to be taking some questions on threads. So head on over there at Natalie Crawford, MD. I also usually answer your questions at the end of every episode, but this week I rambled about these fertility factor fiction. You can ask questions on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD every single Monday. Those questions will be answered on Instagram here on the podcast, and then also in the weekly newsletter, the newsletter you can subscribe for nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. I have my favorite recipes, my favorite products, talk about fertility in the news. So a top news item, also talk about some of these fertility questions and just basic things that are going on in the fertility space and community that I want you to know about. Some of my very favorite Q&A episodes are ones where you actually call me voicemails. I'm going to be increasing the frequency of these to every month. So you have a question, you want it answered, call 657-229-3672. Again, 657-229-3672. Leave a voicemail, say your name or don't, but we will get to your question soon. Thank you guys, friends, for supporting the As A Woman podcast, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. Love you so much. Thank you all for listening to As A Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman. <laughs>